we will hear from the Word of God as read to us by Winsome Lee. She'll be reading from Acts chapter 2, verses 37 to 41, and then I'll be leading a teaching based on that text as well as taking us into the Lord's Supper. So just a reminder to grab a piece of bread and a cracker and a cup, uh, bread or cracker and a cup of juice or some drink. Uh, if you plan to partake in communion this morning. Before we move forward, though, let me just pray for Winsome and the reading of God's Word. Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank you for this time. I thank you for this time, God. I'm so grateful for this technology that allows many of us to connect, Lord, on this Sunday morning. I pray that you'd be with Winsome as she reads from Acts chapter 2, God. Give her clarity of speech. Give her peace of mind, Lord, so that your spirit is moving in her, Lord with every word that leaves her mouth. May you be glorified and may your people be nourished in the reading and the hearing of your word. And Father, may you be with me as I, I teach on this and as we enter into the Lord's Supper, God. May you be present. May your name be lifted high this morning. We pray all this in your name. Amen. Amen. Winsome. Thank you. Reading from the book of Acts, chapter 2, verses 37 to 41. Now when they heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? And Peter said to them, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promises for you and for your children and for all who are far off, everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself, and with many other words, he bore witness and continued to exhort them, saying, Save yourselves from this crooked generation. So those who received his word were baptized. And there were added that day about 3,000 souls. This is the word of God. Amen. Thank you, Winsome. Well, we are in week five of our 52-week study in the book of Acts. And at least from my perspective, uh, it feels like so much has already happened. The book opens with Jesus telling his disciples that his kingdom will stretch, it will cover uh, the ends of the earth, and then he ascends into heaven. That's just the first chapter. And then we see the disciples praying and waiting and praying and waiting, and then the Holy Spirit arrives and totally transforms the disciples and all those who are with them. Hundreds of people begin to see the revolutionary power of the Holy Spirit. First, they see it in the opening of Acts chapter 2 at Pentecost, when Jews and Arabians and Cretans and others from different countries all begin to speak and understand one another in their native tongues. But instead of chaos, there's understanding. Instead of frustration, there's wonderment at what is taking place. And then, and then they see the power of the Holy Spirit through Peter, and through his teaching, through his exhortation to remember that Jesus, the man who was crucified, who resurrected from the dead, and who just about 10 days or so earlier rose to heaven in a cloud, that this man is not just the Messiah for Israel, but he is the Messiah, the anointed one, the Christ for the entire world. And as Peter pushed his listeners to confront and realize this Christ is not just a cosmic, transcendent, far-off, supernatural king, but he is king. He is the Lord who cares about our earthly lives, our earthly existence and experience. That's what we talked about last week. 
That's how Peter's sermon, at least what's recorded in Acts, that's how it ends. Acts chapter 2, verse 36, let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him, has made Jesus, both Lord and Christ. And the sermon ends. And today, in the passage we just heard read to us by Winsome, today we see what happens to the people after hearing this sermon. After having their minds blown that this Jesus is the Messiah for all people, and he is the Lord of their lives at this very moment, sitting in heaven where he has ascended. What do they do with this information? What happens? Can I just say this? To answer this question, what happens? I believe, I believe the faith of many who are listening to Peter at this moment, I believe their faith is revolutionized. And I say this because I see this. I see this revolution in the very first verse of our passage, that those who were listening, when they heard Peter's sermon, they were cut to the heart. And they responded with this question, what shall we do? They were cut to the heart. Now, the Greek words used here uh, are translated well in our English, I would say. But at least for me, when I read a phrase like cut to the heart, I kind of I could have the tendency to just kind of read over it. Just be like, oh, you know, it was it was an important thing that he said, but not really take into account what these words mean. I don't really think that much about it. But truly, what what this means, the way it was used in the original Greek language, it means that the listeners, the people in this crowd, they were pierced, they were stung in the depths of their hearts. What I think is sort of lost in, in our translation, perhaps, is that this piercing, this stinging, the cutting, this wasn't a joyful thing. If you dive into the Greek here, it really focuses on the pain of this experience. One scholar calls it both being emotionally stunned and psychologically pricked. Emotionally stunned and psychologically pricked. And interestingly, the Greek word used for they were cut, katanousis, this is the only time this word is used in the entire New Testament. In other words, the experience that this crowd had hearing Peter preach the gospel for the first time, hearing the first ever recorded Christian sermon, the experience was like anything they had ever faced before. It was truly revolutionary. And in the face of that psychological prick, that emotional stunning, that piercing of the depths of their hearts, in the face of this revolutionary way of understanding the very person of Jesus, many in the crowd responded with the question then, what shall we do? What shall we do? You see, a change is taking place here, a change that has never been seen before. Remember, this is a group of mainly Jews that Peter was addressing, dispersed Jews from several different countries, many of whom who were gathered together with the disciples before the day of Pentecost, praying together, many of whom are, are faithful individuals. And their faith is rocked. These Jewish devotees of the God of Israel, they have just heard something that was disruptive. It was painful. It was stunning. It was painful and stunning. It was disruptive because what they had just heard from Peter, that this Jesus is both Christ and Lord for the entire world, it means that their lives now needed to change. There needed to be a response to this. 
As Willie James Jennings, that Yale professor puts it, we must hear in this question, what shall we do? We must hear in this question, the astounding work of the living God who will not be relegated to Israel's past, but will reveal divine faithfulness in the present moment. This God will no longer be relegated to the history of Israel, but he will reveal divine faithfulness now in the present. You see, God is demanding more of his people now through the power and the presence of the Holy Spirit. You see, what is so intense about this experience and about this question is that those who are listening to Peter and the disciples, they already believed that they had God in their sights. They already believed that they knew what they needed to do to pursue this God. They've already devoted their lives to this God of Israel. They've devoted energy. They've committed their families to it. And now, because of the Holy Spirit's presence in this world, and in the power of the Spirit speaking through Peter, they encounter something new. They encounter something different. They encounter the reality of who Jesus Christ was and who he is. He, Jesus, he will bring about a revolutionizing of the faith of these people. People who already believed in this God, or they thought they did. People who now have their eyes, their minds, their hearts, not just open, right? But their hearts are pierced by the truth of Jesus Christ. Have you ever faced something like this in your own life? As I was preparing for this, you know, it, it, it made me think about the awareness uh, of racial justice that occurred in the summer of 2020 after the murders of George Floyd and Breonna Taylor and Ahmaud Arbery. While so many in this country were already aware of and fighting for racial justice, there was a piercing of hearts, I would say. It wasn't uncommon to hear people say as they watched more and more protests and marches take, take place across the country, even here in our city. It wasn't uncommon to hear something's different. This wasn't just another trending fad to respond to another killing of an unarmed black man or woman, but something was different. In the opening of his book, How to Fight Racism, Jamar Tisby says this. He writes, he says, something is different this time. And he follows that by saying, I could hardly believe I had just typed those words in a tweet for thousands of people to read. I study history. This is Jamar talking. I study history. I have the receipts of this nation's racial failures. I am a black man in the United States. I know firsthand that racism still pervades our society. I am neither naive nor optimistic about issues of racism in this country. But as with so many others, Tisby lifted his voice. And in this book, and elsewhere, he, 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 couldn't, he admits that he couldn't deny the facts that all of a sudden NASCAR banned Confederate flags at their races. All of a sudden, Juneteenth becomes a paid holiday for corporations across the country, even recognized as a holiday by the state of New York. The state flag of Mississippi comes down. Confederate monuments are torn down. Jamar goes through all of this on and on and on. And even he admits that his first book, The Color of Compromise, all of a sudden becomes a New York Times bestseller. Something truly was and is different this time. Of course, this doesn't mean things were perfect or are perfect or that things are fixed or solved. We all know that. 
but the sustained awareness and the concern and the fight for justice, something feels different than ever before. Eyes were open, minds were expanded, hearts were cut, they were pierced. Now that's a that's a global, maybe you know, impersonal sort of example, but I know for me personally, I've experienced being cut to the heart, thinking I was aware of something fully devoted only to find out how much I was missing. Uh, before our three-year-old daughter, Quincy, was born, my wife, Celine, and I uh, did some counseling together. And by that time, we had been married for almost 10 years, and we had never done any counseling outside of premarital, which for the record, married or not, I wouldn't recommend anyone go that long without counseling. In our sessions, I remember how we we would talk about the things that bring pain into our relationship and the things that that bring peace into our relationship. And to be totally honest, nothing Celine or I said, I don't think anything was all of that shocking in and of itself. 10 years of marriage, a few years of dating before that, we were both pretty clear on how to push the other's buttons or how to make the other feel loved and respected. But there's something about being in the context of a counseling session, being led by a counselor that totally changed our relationship. It began to completely alter how we communicate with each other, how open we are with one another, all the while deepening our trust for the other person. Something happened in these sessions that pierced our hearts, that really revolutionized our perspectives and understandings of what our marriage was and how we could hurt it or how we could protect it and grow it. You know, I think of the Jews in this passage Religious individuals who thought they understood their faith, who thought they understood what it meant to anticipate the coming of this Messiah, who thought they understood what it meant to live lives of holiness. But they didn't because we're told they were cut to the heart when they heard the truth of the gospel. Last year, in the face of such horrendous and ongoing racial injustice, Americans who maybe thought they understood their contexts, their histories, all of a sudden they were cut to the heart when they witness the truth and the pain and the suffering of their neighbors, of their brothers and sisters, of their friends. I thought I understood Celine. I thought I understood our marriage. I didn't think that we'd really gain a whole lot from doing counseling together because I didn't think we needed it. And I was cut to the heart when I faced the truth of what it actually meant to love and respect my wife and the relationship that we have. And if I may be so bold, though each of these examples are quite different, a crowd listening and responding to a sermon preached in the first century, a nation seeing and confronting centuries of injustice and a couple reacting in a counseling session. Though they're all different, I think they all have something in common. Actually, I think, I think they all have two things in common. The first thing is, I truly believe that in these experiences, and if you're thinking about something else in your own life as your mind's drifting to this conversation that connects to this, I truly believe that the Holy Spirit is at work in these moments, in these conversations, in these piercing truths. You know, so often we want to see the Holy Spirit work like it does in the beginning of Acts 2, where people begin to speak and hear one another in their native languages. It's an obvious, truly incredible experience. We're so desperate to see some supernatural presence of the Holy Spirit. And while I believe there is nothing impossible or inconceivable for the Holy Spirit to do, I do think more often than not, it seems that the Holy Spirit works like it does in this morning's passage. Not in supernatural, fiery manifestations like what we 
see on the day of Pentecost, but in the piercing of hearts, like we see in verse 37 today. In the pursuit of racial justice, in the pursuit of a healthier relationship or friendship or a healthier understanding of yourself, in the pursuit of bringing first century Jews closer to God, the Holy Spirit is at work. And when the Spirit is at work revolutionizing the lives of God's people, we are confronted with a question and we must ask it and we must answer it. What shall we do? And I really think that's the second thing that all of these experiences have in common. When we're in a situation where we're cut to the heart, we respond with, what, what shall we do? Maybe we don't say those words exactly. Maybe we're just kind of left speechless. But the idea of, well, what's next? What do I do with this information? What shall we do? I think that resonates with all of us. The murder of George Floyd is seen by millions of people. What shall we do? Me and Celine are jolted through. Sorry, I think my internet hiccuped. Uh, me and Celine are jolted through counseling. What shall we do? Peter preaches a sermon and says, Jesus Christ is the Lord of your life. What shall we do? What shall we do? And this is really it, isn't it? What shall we do? The answer to that question and what we do with that answer, it dictates so much in our lives. The Holy Spirit is doing revolutionary work. Do we have the faith to be led by it? And to be led by the answer to that question, what shall we do? You know, the answer that Peter gives to the crowd, I believe, is an answer that continues to speak 2,000 years later. Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Verse 38. Repent and be baptized. Peter's response to this question, what shall we do? His response instructs those listening to move, to react in a fresh direction. And there is an emphasis on fresh here, because this is not necessarily new to the Jewish people listening. The idea of repentance, the idea of forgiveness, these things are present throughout the history of Israel. But now there is a fresh direction that repentance and forgiveness take, right? All must be baptized in the name of Jesus. So what does it mean to repent? We heard Eunice pray about this this morning so beautifully in response to Psalm 30. You know, repentance is quite literally the changing of your inner self, the changing of your heart. It's different from confession, where we confess, where we admit our sins, our brokenness, our role in brokenness. But when we begin to repent of these things, we begin to change. You know, Peter is hearkening uh, back to the words of John the Baptist. In Matthew 3, John the Baptist is found preaching in the wilderness in Judea, saying, repent, for the kingdom of God is near, the kingdom of heaven is near. And then in Matthew 4, as Jesus begins his earthly ministry, he begins to preach, and some of the first words that he says, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is near. And now, after the death and the resurrection and the ascension of Jesus, after the arrival of the Holy Spirit, what does Peter say? repent. And though the kingdom of heaven is still near, and I would say it's nearer in Peter's time than it ever was before, 
and it's nearer for us today than it's ever been before, Peter instead implores his audience to prepare even more for the arrival of this kingdom. Repent and be baptized. And we certainly don't have time to do We don't have time to do a deep doctrinal <laughs> dive into baptism today. Um, but just like repentance, baptism was a critical part of the message of both John the Baptist and Jesus. And it remains a critical part of Peter's teaching. And it remains a critical part of the church today in 2021. Baptism is a visible public sign of one's turning to God through repentance, of committing to always ask the question, what shall I do? Though the act of baptism is literally a one-time event, right? It is a continuous experience that forms and pushes you deeper and deeper into a life that reflects Jesus Christ. As Professor Jennings says, he says, from that moment forward, from the moment of baptism forward, life with God is through Jesus. And this moment of baptism will yield life in a body turned toward the renewal of creation. So he's looking at the Jews listening. And now, from this moment forward, their lives are marked through Jesus now. And their lives will be turned toward the renewal of creation. It's a revolution. And it forces you to decide if you are going to pursue this way of Jesus, or if you're going to pursue the way of the world, or as Peter so lovingly puts it, the way of this crooked generation, verse 40. And we see that this decision, it was not welcomed by all. Verse 41 doesn't say every single person received Peter's word and they were baptized. No, it says those who received Peter's word were baptized. The offensiveness of what Peter has been preaching and continues to say, the offensiveness of the story of Jesus Christ, the offensiveness becomes a problem for some. And we know this all too well. When we're pierced, when we're cut to the heart, and we ask that question, what shall we do? Sometimes the answer to that question is too offensive to our nature, and we want to move in the other direction. Those examples I shared, the response to George Floyd last year, it wasn't unanimous, right? It wasn't universal. Plenty of people were cut to the heart. And when asked the question, what shall we do, instead of pursuing justice, instead of pursuing redemption, they criticized, they pointed fingers, they cast or shifted blame. Counseling? I don't need to tell you that every counseling session isn't wonderful. And when we confront some of the realities in our own lives with a counselor or a therapist and we ask, well, what shall I do with this? Sometimes we wanna run away from the answer. But truly, truly, the answers to the question, they may as well be the exact same as Peter's. The response to George Floyd, what shall we do? We should repent. We should pursue the way of Jesus. Counseling, relationships, what should we do? We should repent. We should pursue the way of Jesus. And here in the first century, when Peter preaches the gospel and people ask, well, what shall we do? There are those in the crowd who ignore that answer. This is real stuff. I mean, this is life. This isn't fluff. This isn't a feel-good story made up just for the sake of feeling good. This is real, and this is how revolution works. There will be those who are cut to the heart with you, but their response will be totally different than yours. And so you must continue to ask the question, what shall we do? What shall I do? 
we'll see in the coming weeks throughout the book of Acts that even, even if this question isn't literally asked in the verses, this question is always guiding things behind the scenes. What shall we do? Repent and be baptized. Next week, as Acts 2 wraps up, we actually begin to see the tangible fruit of what a baptized life of repentance produces. But today, we sit with these words from Acts 2, 37 to 41. We sit with the reality that the Holy Spirit cuts us to the heart, and the Holy Spirit presents us with a question and a decision to make. What shall we do? Shall we pursue the way of Jesus, or shall we pursue the way of the world? When we come to the Lord's Supper each week, I remind us that this is a time of reconciliation, a time where we remember that through pursuing the way of Jesus, we are in fact reconciled to Jesus. And that pushes us to then be ambassadors of this reconciliation, of this reconciling power to those around us, to our neighbors, to our friends, to our workplaces, to our families, to ourselves, to our desires. We're constantly working toward glimpses of divine Christ-like reconciliation in our lives. And I also remind us that this reconciliation, that this table, that these things are approached by us through repentance. That we do not come to the Lord's Supper without repenting, striving to change our lives to look more and more like Jesus. Striving to answer that question, what shall we do with repentance? What shall we do? And even this, I know that this may feel offensive to some of you, to have to constantly bring up your sins, to have to constantly confront brokenness. But friends, this is what we are called to as followers of this Jesus, as people being led by the Holy Spirit, whether it's John the Baptist, or whether it's Jesus himself, or whether it's Peter preaching in the first century and still speaking to us today. Our posture, our reactions, our first steps must always be repent. And from this repentance, we begin to see the power of this divine reconciliation. We can cry out to God in the face of injustice. We can grieve to God over the crookedness of the world around us. And we can actively be part of the renewal of all things. And I believe we find the encouragement needed, the conviction, the transformation, all of these things I believe we find here at the Lord's table. And that is why our service each week is always moving us toward the table, toward this time together. And so before we take the Lord's Supper together, as we do each week, we spend a moment in silence, in reflection, in a time of repentance to prepare ourselves for this feast. Now, there's no quote or anything like that this week. I just want us to pause and reflect to offer up our own confessions to God, to enter into repentance, and to ask this question, what shall we do? There's no right or wrong way to do this. There's no formula. If you're comfortable praying, spend this time praying. If you're unsure what all this means, do your best to center yourself, to calm yourself, and to see what God might be saying to you in this time. And before we, um, before we enter into this, if I may, I feel like I need to share a weight uh, that is on my heart this morning uh, that Eunice prayed about. Uh, and as much as I wanted to bring it up in the sermon, uh, I wanted to do my best to stay focused on the text, but I also think it's inappropriate for us to ignore as a church or for me to ignore as a pastor. And so what better time than now to share this as we move forward and closer to feasting together with the Lord's Supper. But friends, the, <clears throat> the anti-Asian racism and physical attacks that 
we have seen um, that have arisen in the last couple of weeks, but really not just the last couple of weeks, over the last 11 months, and certainly for decades and decades before. This is heinous, and it's heartbreaking. And as I've been thinking about this question, what shall I do? What shall we do? I know that the answer is to stand up for, and more importantly, stand with my brothers and sisters who are fearful, who are experiencing this, who are worried and terrified for their parents or grandparents. I also know the answer is for me to repent of my own complicity, my complicity in racism, whether I've actively been part of it, or I've turned a blind eye to it around me. If the Lord's Supper is an experience of reconciliation, then friends, I'm bringing this to the table this morning. What are you bringing to the table today? Let's take a moment to consider that in silence and we'll come back together for the Lord's Supper. <laughs> 